0: sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on the level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence." I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Kimberly. Good morning, Lake Baldwin Church. Good to be back with you guys again. Well, there have been several times Uh, in my life, uh, moments that are etched in my memory that have been very painful for me. Uh, Times when going through suffering uh, in the brokenness of this world where I have felt like the face of God was obscured, where I've wondered where was God, where I've cried out to him and heaven was silent. You know, one of those moments was in 2003. I received a phone call from my father. And this is not the type of phone call you want to receive. He was calling to tell me that my sister had lost her firstborn child, five months old. And death had come way too soon for this little one. And I wondered, where was God? Was he asleep at the wheel when this was going on. And then in 2012, death came slowly in this case. In 2012, we watched Debbie's mom wither away day by day from cancer. And I remember it clearly, she died on New Year's Eve that night and I wondered where was God? And then in 2012, another day that I'll never forget, Just another work day, I was actually packing that morning, I was planning on uh, taking a flight out to the corporate headquarters, and I received a call from my boss. And my boss said, Brian, you need to be at the office this morning. And I said, no, I can't, I'm I'm on my way to the headquarters. He said, "No, no, you need to go to the office. We've got HR there, they're waiting for you. We've got some other managers there, they're there to shut down your office, this was an office that I had set up 10 years prior. This was a company I would worked for 15 years for. And I cried out to God, where are you, God? And heaven was silent. Maybe you've had moments like that in your life. Maybe you can recall various times in your life. You're never going to forget them. So much pain wrapped up in those moments. Maybe you're going through a time like that right now. You've called out to God, and heaven is silent. You search for God's face, and he's not there. Well, our psalm this morning, Psalm 27, it picks up on this very struggle of wondering where is the presence of God when we're going through suffering. In verses seven through nine, this is what David says. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. David is struggling. He's wondering, where are you, Lord? Have you hidden your face from me? And yet, if we look at the first six verses of this psalm, we see something completely different. We see David declaring absolute, absolute confidence in the Lord. And then you get to these verses in 7 through 9, and it seems like it's all falling apart. It makes you wonder, was it two different people who wrote these sections of the psalm? Was it Dr. Jekyll who wrote the first six verses, and Mr. Hyde, who blurted out verses seven through nine. And I find when I come to Psalm 27, something very comforting, because it captures the reality of what we face, all of us as people of God, living in a broken world. That we vacillate, that we yo-yo between fear and faith, between trust and in trouble, between pleading for God's rescue and then resting in his presence, between knowing in our head the truths of God and his promises and then experiencing that disconnect in our heart and not feeling that he is there. It's very comforting to me to read this psalm because it captures our experience as God's people living in a broken world. And you may wonder that if you're experiencing this sort of vacillation that maybe you're weak in faith, maybe you're not a believer. And I would say if you are wrestling with God in this way, it is actually demonstrating that you are a believer because you're wrestling with the Lord who you are in relationship with. That's what the people of God do. They wrestle with God when we're struggling That's exactly what you see David doing here in Psalm 27. And so whatever trial you're facing, whatever darkness you're going through, just like the saints of old, just like Abraham and Joshua and David and the saints in the New Testament, all throughout history, God promises to be with his people. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And in that promise, we can take comfort. And so as we unpack this psalm, we're going to look at David and how can he be so confident in the Lord. We're going to look at the source of his confidence, and then we're going to see how this confidence brims over, how it flourishes and gets nourished. And then towards the end of the psalm, we're going to see David demonstrate his confidence. And so look with me in verses one through three, the source of David's confidence, it begins with who God is. Verse one, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? David is using the personal name of God here, Yahweh. This is the name that God had told his people. This is the personal God to David who made promises that his kingdom will last forever. That his throne would endure forever. David is not declaring something about an abstract God. He is declaring something about a God that he is personally in relationship with and from whom he had received promises. And he calls Yahweh his light, his salvation, and his stronghold. Yahweh is his light, light is truth. And in truth, we get clarity, we get understanding, we get order. Now, David, in his life, he was surrounded by darkness, right? And in darkness, you begin to lose perspective, you begin to lose understanding. And David is saying, the Lord is the one who brings clarity to my life and to my purposes, And then he calls Yahweh his salvation, the one who delivers him from his enemies, the one who delivers him from darkness and from trouble. And then lastly, he calls Yahweh his stronghold. And a stronghold is a place of refuge, a place where you can go to find protection from harm. And so the source of David's confidence is in God and who he is. His confidence is solely in the Lord. And when we come to verses 2 and 3, and you're going to encounter all of these words, evildoers, adversaries, foes, an army camped against him, these are not theoretical things to David. If you're a student of the Bible, you know that David he, he was plagued with darkness. Saul, the king, and his men chased him down. They were hunting him down. You imagine that, fleeing for your life, being hunted. David went up against the Philistines, an army of the Philistines. He went up against Goliath. He fled from his very own son, Absalom, who was trying to take the kingdom away from him. David knew these things. They were real. They were not theoretical And he could have caved in to fear. He could have caved in to self-pity. And certainly, as we see in this psalm, at times he would wonder, where is God? Where is God? Has he hidden his face from me? Has he forsaken me? But in the face of even an army arrayed against him, he is confident. Why? Because his confidence is rooted solely in the Lord and who he is. Now all of us here this morning, especially when we undergo trial, we are prone to place our confidence in things other than the Lord. And it may look like this. Maybe at work you are facing a crisis. Maybe you've lost an account already. Maybe you have a coworker who's attacking you or who's subtly taking credit For all that you've done. Where do you go to for strength? Where do you go to for confidence in times like that? Do you double down on your own work? On your own reputation? Do you double down on your position? Or maybe it's something like this. Maybe right now your life is falling apart. Maybe life is upside down. There's no order at all to what is going on. And you need light. You need clarity. Where do you go for that light and clarity? Where do you go for understanding? Where do you go for wisdom? Do you go to the world or do you go to God? Do you spend your time reading Reddit or do you spend your time going to God's word? Are you spending your time listening to Joe Rogan or are you at the feet of Jesus what walls or strongholds have you built in your life to provide protection for you? We've all done this. We've all put things in our life to give us security to make us feel at ease. Maybe it's your bank account. You've built up a bank account, and in that you take security, and in that you take comfort. Maybe it's your reputation. Maybe it's the fact that you have a job, a strong and secure job, or maybe it's a relationship. For David, he says, "The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall be I? Of whom shall I fear?" And for us, if we are in Jesus this morning. If Jesus is our light and our salvation, if he is our stronghold, if he, in other words, is the source of our confidence, we can be confident, even if life is falling apart. And then in verses four through six, we see how this confidence that David has in the Lord, how it actually flourishes, how it actually is nurtured. And it's nurtured by his solitary devotion to the Lord. And it's manifested in two ways. It's manifested by prayer and by pursuit. Listen to verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that's prayer. That will I seek after. This is pursuit. And throughout David's life and his walk with God, He has boiled everything down to one solitary thing. Only one thing mattered to him. This is a guy who, at this time, we don't know, maybe he is king or he would become king. He would have access to everything. He would have privilege. He would have benefit. But he has boiled everything down to one thing. And that one thing he prayed for and that one thing he pursued in verse 4 that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Now David knew Yahweh. He knew the Lord. He was in relationship with the Lord. He had the promises of God to him, but that was not enough. That was not enough. He wanted more of the Lord. He wanted to get more of the Lord. He wanted to commune continually with him. He wanted to dwell in God's house forever. He wanted to commune with the Lord in an even deeper way. And David knew that the sweetest thing, the most prized thing in all of life, the greatest possession The only thing that satisfies, the only thing that matters was to be with God, to be near him, to be in his house and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. David was drawn to beauty. Now, what was so beautiful about the Lord? What captured David's heart so much? I mean, the Lord was invisible. But yet, Scripture says he, David wanted to be in God's house forever. He wanted to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Well, in the temple of the Lord and in the tabernacle, that temporary tent where it represented the presence of God on earth, the one place where heaven met earth, that's where David wanted to be because he knew that's where God would be. And David knew that in the, in the tabernacle... There was the Ark of the Covenant. There was the mercy seat upon the Ark. There were the Ten Commandments in the Ark. There was the altar of sacrifice. And all of these things called out to the beauty of the Lord. They spoke of the person and work of the Lord. The fact that there was even a tent, a tabernacle, spoke of God's grace and of his goodness We often think that God is obligated to have communion with us, to have a relationship with us, to meet with us, to give us promises. God, who is the creator of all, is not obligated to do that. And the fact that there was a place on earth to meet God spoke of a loving and gracious God. And then in in entering into that tent and pondering the things in it, Scripture says David wanted to inquire in the temple. That word inquire has the sense of contemplating, meditating upon. Contemplate, the Latin is templum. Templum is where we get temple or sacred space. David wanted to meditate upon these things and ask, what does it mean? The altar the mercy seat, the Ten Commandments. These things caught the gaze and attention of David because they spoke of the person and the work of the Lord. It spoke of his perfection in the law, his holiness, his beauty. And it spoke of that glorious work that the Lord would do to provide a way for man to be in relationship with God. And that is through sacrifice. Atonement placed upon the mercy seat. David's heart was so captivated by these things. He wanted to be there. He wanted to dwell upon it. He wanted to spend his time thinking about the wondrous and glorious beauty of the Lord. And in verses 5 and 6, we see how this gazing at God's beauty, it leads to a flourishing of David's confidence of the Lord, and that leads to worship. It says in verse 5 and 6, For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble, and he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Do you see what's happening here? David's confidence as he enters the temple, now it's boiling over, it's brimming over, he's sure that God is going to hide him in the day of trouble, he's sure that God will conceal him, and he's sure that he will be protected, and not only protected, he's going to be exalted, lifted up upon a rock, lifted up above his enemies, his confidence is flourishing And when he gazed upon the beauty of the Lord, not only is his confidence flourishing, but it leads to what? To worship. Beauty leads to worship and worship in turn. It turns around and nourishes, nurtures, reinforces our confidence in the Lord. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. You know, when we are captivated by something beautiful, it takes our eyes off of ourselves. It takes our eyes off of our circumstances and it places it somewhere else. You know, one of the things I love to do at weddings, and I can remember the last wedding I did was uh, for my cousin's daughter. And one of the things I love to do is when when the bride is coming down the aisle for the very first time, and she's beautiful, she's arrayed in splendor, and every single eye in that place is focused on her. I like to take a little glimpse of the groom and look at his face. What does it look like to be totally captured by beauty? Because in that moment, that guy is not thinking about himself. He is totally enraptured with his beautiful bride. He's not thinking about the future, he's not thinking about the troubles he has. He's thinking about one thing he's thinking about his beautiful bride. It's the same way when you stand before natural beauty. You don't stand in front of the Grand Tetons or the Grand Canyon and think, well, how great I am, right? You're lost in wonder and awe, and you see glory, and it captures your heart, and that beauty leads to worship. Beauty always leads to worship for the pagan and for the believer. You know, we're no different than David. We all go through suffering and trials. We all vacillate and ping pong between faith and fear, between having it totally in our head, and then our hearts are disconnected, and we don't feel like God is there. And just like David, we need in our times of trial for our faith and our confidence in the Lord to flourish to be nurtured, to be fed, to be reinforced, and how do we get there? Well, let me ask, what is your one thing? What is your one thing? What captivates your heart and allows you to declare the greatness of something else? What captivates your heart and takes your eyes off of your own circumstances? If you're a believer in Christ, you need to be captivated by the beauty of Jesus, his person, his work. That's what was going on in the tent, in the tabernacle. David saw in shadow form. He saw from afar the work of Christ. And now we, on the other side of the cross, we see clearly the person and the work of Jesus. And it ought to capture our heart. With his beauty. How do you get there, David? He prayed. He prayed to the Lord. He asked one thing of the Lord, and then he pursued. Greg mentioned the August Prayer Initiative. You know, you may be here this morning, and your prayer life has is, is, uh, been wilting. You want to jumpstart your prayer life. Let me encourage you to sign up for the August Prayer Initiative. Now this is not a program for you to engage in so you can just check a box, feel good about yourself, about doing something, and get recognized for engaging in this. Engage in the August Prayer Initiative so that you can get more of the Lord, so you can encounter the Lord through his word and through prayer. Engage in this so you can be captivated again by beauty, so you can call out to him. And then how do you get this? You get this by being in his house over and over again. That's what David wanted. He wanted to be in the house of the Lord because in the house of the Lord is the beauty of the Lord. That's why we come here week after week to get more of Jesus, to have our faith nourished, especially in times of trial, but also... Hey, when things are going well, often we forget how much we need the Lord. Certainly when we're faced with the brokenness of this life, we need to be captured by beauty. But I know that there's brokenness inside of me because of my sin. And daily I need to be captured by the beauty of the Lord, what he has done, who he is. He is loving and he... He's gracious, and he came down and he put on flesh so that he can dwell with us and have relationship with us. You know, at the end of the psalm in verses 13 and 14, now we see David demonstrating his confidence. He was so confident of the Lord that he believed he would see God's goodness in his lifetime. Verse 13 I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now, if you're in Jesus this morning, if you followed him in faith, you have already received and have tasted of the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things That scripture is saying, God has given us His very best already, His precious Son. So in this life, is he going to fall short of giving us a lesser good? No. If you have Jesus, you have God's greatest good toward you already. So confident was David that he could actually now wait upon the Lord, wait for his deliverance, wait for his provision, wait for his goodness. Verse 14, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. His confidence is brimming over and now he's inviting his audience, his community, he's encouraging them with this confidence. Yes, I can wait for the Lord. And I can do it in strength and I can do it and face it with courage, not in weakness, not cowering in fear. You know, oftentimes when we are in a tough spot, the last thing we want to do is wait. And yet, waiting in those moments sometimes is the exact thing that we need to do. We need to be still. And know that he is God. Be still and know that he is God and that we are not. He is the sovereign Lord. He is the one that is in control of every detail of our lives. And we are not. In Genesis 16, there's a a narrative about Sarah. If you're a student of the Bible, you know that Sarah was married to Abraham. And Abraham received the promises of God. God's goodness to him. And, and one particular promise he received was, Abraham, through your offspring, I'm going to bring a blessing to all the nations of the earth. But Sarah was barren. She couldn't have kids. And so in chapter 16, she could not wait. And so she goes about fulfilling God's promise on her own. She gives her maidservant Hagar to Abraham to have a child. She couldn't wait on the Lord. She wasn't patient. She had to take control of the situation herself and make something happen. Our lack of waiting at times, and certainly here in Sarah's case, is showing her unbelief in God and his promises. Sometimes we have that very same problem. We don't believe God, who he is, and his promises towards us, that he is good, that he is sovereign, that he's in control. And Sarah didn't believe it. And so I ask you this morning, who is your confidence in? Who's your confidence in? So much so that you can let go of the situation, let go of control, and allow God to be God. And to show his goodness to you. And to patiently wait with strength upon him. Who is your confidence in? Only upon Christ, the solid rock, can you stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father and mighty God, Lord, we need this kind of strength. We need this kind of courage in the face of our trials to wait upon you. Knowing that you are good, we need this kind of confidence, knowing that you will provide, that you will show us goodness, even in our lifetime. Indeed, you have shown us the greatest good in your Son, And so, Father, draw our hearts to your Son to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And we ask this in Christ's most precious name. Amen.